Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. Today's interview is with Jacoby Ballard. I met Jacoby a few years back at the Accessible Yoga Conference, and I'm super excited for this conversation because we talked about Jacoby's new book, A Queer Dharma. Jacoby Ballard is a social justice educator and yoga teacher in Salt Lake City, Utah. He leads workshops and trainings around the country on diversity, equity, and inclusion. As a yoga teacher with 20 years of experience, he leads workshops, retreats, teacher trainings, teaches at conferences, and runs the Resonance Mentorship Program for certified yoga teachers to find their niche and calling. In 2008, Jacoby co-founded Third Root Community Health Center in Brooklyn to work at the nexus of healing and social justice. Since 2006, Jacoby has taught queer and trans yoga a space for queer folks to unfurl and cultivate resilience and received Yoga Journal's Game Changer Award in 2014 and Good Karma Award in 2016. Jacoby has taught in schools, hospitals, nonprofit and business offices, a maximum security prison, a recovery center, a cancer center, LGBTQ centers, gyms, a veteran center, and yoga studios. He lives with his three best teachers, his partner, his toddler, and his wily dog. Jacoby just released his first book, A Queer Dharma, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation. I surely hope you enjoy this interview. Jacoby, it is so, um, such an honor to be here with you today. Thank you for being who you are and for um, being here on the podcast and for um, writing a queer dharma, which we will, we will talk about. Thank you, Michelle. It's a delight to be here with you. I think we've only been in like shared physical space one time, but I feel like our work uh, coincides and overlaps and supports one another. So I'm so excited to have this conversation. Yeah. I remember meeting you at the yoga service council conference I don't know what year it was because time but maybe like five or six years five years ago something like like that yeah um and remember yeah remember meeting you there and connecting and um of course you know we've connected through the ether and the internet and all the things since then and it's really sweet to be here in this way today so so I'd love for you to share some about who you are and and your medicine and the magic you bring into the world. Wow, thank you for that. I am a white, queer, trans person. Um, I was uh, raised in the land currently understood as uh, the Rockies of Colorado and now live um, in Salt Lake City. Uh, I'm Paiute, Goshute, Shoshone and Ute land, um, formerly known as Kokarni. Um, 
I've been doing social justice work for about two decades. I've been teaching for about two decades as well. Um, within the last 10 years, those two avenues of my work have coincided and dovetailed, whereas before they were largely had to exist separately from one another. I've been in anti-racist work uh, for a long time, starting with solidarity work uh, with Central America and South America. Yeah, I'm a Dharma practitioner, a plant lover, a gardener, and I love to be on mountaintops. I love that. I love everything you just said. And, and I love the way people respond to the question, like, who are you and what do you do? And just hearing what people share. So appreciate everything you just shared. And I know that um, your book, A Queer Dharma, which I have right here, Yoga and Meditations for Liberation, just came out. Um, thank you for laboring and, and birthing a queer dharma. And I remember actually talking about a book at the Yoga Service Council. I remember us sitting around the table and, and Skill in Action had just come out and you were like, yeah. I have a man, you know, manuscript, like because I self-published Skill in Action, the first edition, how do I do this? So I remember that. And so it's really amazing to hold the book and be like, this is the book that I believe you were talking about. It is. It mm -hmm. is, and it's. I was uh, advised by a couple of agents and a couple of editors in 2016 that like this is not sellable, this is not marketable, and at the time I was furious. I was like, "You're wrong," but also, you know, with hindsight, uh, this is a riper time for a book like mine to to come out. So even though it felt like a setback and a struggle in that moment, because I was talking to you and very encouraged to go the self-publishing route. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you share some about I, the timing now, because you said it's a riper time now, like what does that mean and how do you understand that? <sighs> I mean, in this period, I think uh, following the Trump presidency and all of the setbacks and assaults on so many different communities um, and longstanding policies, and then also after the Freedom Summer of, of 2020 and all of the, the work that's been done since then. And then also, you know, whenever there's uh, progress or, or the impact of our movements kind of takes deeper root, there's always like increased backlash, right? So I also think that this is a moment where those of us that have been doing the work like need support and like need reinforcement, need further nourishment so that we're not exhausted and overwhelmed and end up leave, leaving the work for movement. Yeah, I appreciate what you said about nourishment. Like we, in this, in organizing and movement work, we need nourishment along the way and reminders and care. And I think that's why I asked the question about your medicine and your, your magic that you bring into the world because this is medicine, a queer dharma, what you've labored and, and birthed for us. And I'd love for you to share some about the book. And I want to know about your writing process. I, I feel like I want to understand more about that and also a queer dharma and what it means to you and, and how it feels to have a queer dharma out in the world. My writing process was first in response to mainstream yoga. Um, I started writing A Queer Dharma in, in 2013 and at that point had been leading 
queer and trans yoga for seven years and had started my own community health center, um, collaboratively owned in, in Brooklyn and been teaching queer and trans yoga there for, for five years. And some of the mainstream yoga studios were getting word of queer and trans yoga and there's a lot of critique and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of, you know, why are you dividing? Is that this exclusionary? Aren't you further separating our community? You know, which to me just indicates that they weren't aware of all the microaggressions that inevitably happen in mainstream yoga spaces and assume that queer folks and BIPOC folks and fat folks and disabled folks like feel belonging there, feel welcomed, feel like their dignity is respected and uplifted. Um, so it started as like a letter to them after I'd gotten like so many emails, so many questions along those lines. And then, and then also shifted into kind of a love letter to my own community of like, this is why we need this um, embodied space, heartfelt space to be with one another which is both, you know, beautiful and also sometimes difficult. There can be drama within tight-knit communities. And so, you know, queer and trans yoga can be a space for where folk who were just recently harassed or assaulted come to, to restore themselves. It can also be a place where like there's been a breakup or there's been a falling out within a leading queer organization. And we're like working that out in the space. And then along the way, I, I really became rooted in the heart teachings that are found both in the um, Yoga Sutras and, and many lineages of, of Buddhism. Um, and the traditional four Brahma Viharas, right, are loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and joy. And as I taught those, um, both within queer and trans yoga and outside of it to, to a broader community, it became apparent that other topics that kept coming up were letting go and acceptance, uh, forgiveness, and anger, and working with anger sustainably. So um, the heart teachings really transformed my relationships and you know, made my work at Third Root and um, in you know, relationships with, with folks doing similar work in yoga service and yoga and social justice richer and uh, more vulnerable and uh, more intimate. And so, you know, my friend Holly Corey's voice is ringing in my head and she says, you know, that we know our yoga is working when our relationships get better. And so it was really the heart teachings that I saw my relationships improving because I was doing the internal work to have, to be in right relationship with folks. Um, and so that was kind of like, that was the more recent uh, aspect of the, the manuscript that I put in that was built upon some Dharma talks that I've done, um, the, all incorporating all the questions and resistance and inquiries that students have presented along the way. Yeah, I love how you um, um, talk about a queer Dharma as a love letter to your community. And, and really, I mean, I think specific to your community and the world just in, in, um, reading it and and um the little time we have spent together in physical space like that's how it feels like a gift to the world and i love the specificity about your community as well and it, you know you reminded me that i remember teaching yoga i don't know this was a long time ago and i read an article you wrote 
um, multiple times I would do this in class. Um, and I know it was when you were at Third Root. I don't remember the title of the article because it just came back to me. Like I remember reading it in class and someone coming up to me at the end. This was a uh, probably, she was in her 60s, a 60 year old white woman who practiced with me a lot. And she just came up and really appreciated me for reading the article and reading a section from it. And it's making me think about, like you've been doing this work for a really long time. And in so many ways, I feel like are a pioneer in this work. And I'm curious to know how, like what in your path led you here? And that's a really big question and could be the entire podcast. But like, what do you understand about your path that led you to, I mean, even that article at that time and then a queer Dharma, because that felt, I don't know what year that was, but it was a while ago, right? Like 2013 or 2012, something like that. Right. And so I just, to me, that feels like a while ago, given where we are now, yeah. with yoga in the West and the conversations people are having, like, I didn't think, I didn't feel like people were having those conversations that much in 2012 or 2013. And that's yeah. where my question is from. And just this one appreciating you, but also like what led you to this place? Um, you know, not only in your sort of understanding of who you are and what you want to offer to the world, but also like it is an offering to the world, right? There's like this impact it's outward um, it's an outward expression. And so I'm curious, and that's brave. And so I'm curious to know more about like, how did you, how did you, did you get here? I think it's the question. <laughs> um, part of it, you know, so that article is about the yamas and niyamas and a social justice take on them. Right. And, um, I had been taught the, the yamas and niyamas and kind of a, in my yoga teacher training and immediately understood them as a practice of justice. Like this is an internal practice of justice, but they weren't being talked about like that. You know, often like I remember going to Jiva Mukti in New York and how they talked about ahimsa was vegetarianism and juicing. And I was like, what? <laughs> what, are we, what are we talking about? That's, there, there's so much more harm in the world. Like, sure, there is the abuse of animals, yes. And <laughs> there's so much more. So I yeah, part of it came out of just like frustration with especially, you know, white, cis, straight, upper middle class yoga world and just like how much they were missing. And and also I'm informed by the social justice movements and organizations in New York City, you know, who were doing things that are like common practice now, like those who are most impacted lead the organization and those who are most protected are the ones that are like on security detail or you know that are like protecting those who are going to in, in whatever way we can if it's like a physical march or if it's you know who, who's leading the press conference and gonna get you know um, shit on by the city council or whatever so for me that I'll also say that like third group came from that place of just a place of grief, having been fired from a natural food store run by a yoga ashram. And I had been so excited to, to work for what I thought was an organization of integrity. And then so heartbroken to see, you know, this organization that opens, answers the phone with how may I serve you? When I had my employee performance review at three months and, and nine months, it was questions about my body and my trans identity. And it, it had nothing to do with my, my performance. It was all about um, how is my identity um, interfering with 
sales uh, because I was, you know, asking my coworkers to not misgender me <laughs> and to, to use the right words and, and practice the hymns are really, but they didn't realize that or, or practice that as, as a himsa. And then I guess the last piece I would say is a lot of the work of Third Root and then also my work since Third Root has been supporting social justice workers to be sustainable in their work. I've seen so many people leave movement work just out of, for mental health concerns for, because their body is literally breaking because the model of social justice, although it's changing, especially in the like last three, four years, the model has been to martyr yourself to the cause, right? And I know through like talking to the family members of like the Black Panthers or SDS that like that has a cost, right? Like that costs your relationship, that costs your family, that costs, you know, your garden or, you know, the integrity of the, the space you're, you're living in. Um, so really knowing that how we do social justice work needed to shift and be more sustainable so that all of us can stay in it for the long haul. I'm thinking of like the founder of, of Fierce, left Fierce to become a, a nurse, this organization that was centered around and led by uh, queer, pe queer people of color in their, in their teens and 20s. And that just kept happening again and again. And so what that told me is, you know, we leave the movement to go seek wellness because there's not wellness in the movement. Mm. Yes, that is so deep. What you just said about leaving the movement because there's not wellness in the movement it, and you acknowledge it's changing. You know, the conversation is changing and um, I do feel like there's some rest is being centered more in care and it took a long time. And a lot of people have um, died because of martyring themselves to the cause. And I've had two colleagues who did that in my dismantling racism work that I believe got sick because of white supremacy, but also the way they were working. Um, and, and I didn't want to like learn the lesson about rest that way, right? Like that's not how. Um, so I really hear, I just heard you when you were speaking about the cost and doing the important work of, of um, changing the way that we do the work, our movement work and organizing work, and also supporting folks in, in movement work to be more sustainable so they can continue to do it, right? And I'm curious to know what, like for you, um, what that looks like, right? What, what practices at this moment in time sustain you given all that's going on in the world and, and your life? That's a really great question. Um, I've become more intentional about when I take in news and what sources I take in news from, um, which, you know, sometimes I feel like stable enough to take in conservative news sources. And I feel like very inspired by Kazu Haga, who intentionally listens to Fox News to know what the other side is saying, because if you, if you don't know and can't see any kernels of truth, then it's easier to dehumanize, which then leads to separation, which then gives us the mess that we're we're in. Um, but being discerning about about news, um, especially during the Trump years, the Trump years really taught me that because it was like terrible every time you turn on the radio. Um, and when is my nervous system able to take that? Um, having intentional days of days of rest, days off. I'm about to take two weeks off um, 
I've seen lots of movement organizers in the last five years take sabbaticals and ask movement to fund it, whether that's within the organization or, you know, uh, a Patreon for Autumn Brown sabbatical. Um, uh, and that seems really helpful that that's like becoming, especially if the leaders of our movements are doing that, right? That like demonstrates that, that all of us need to. I've seen, this is not, this is both my practice and organizational practice, I guess. I've seen organizations um, develop budget lines for self-care and collective care, um, whether that's inviting in meditation or every month they have an acupuncturist come in or, you know, the, like for the organization to take responsibility for the well-being of, of who works there and to therefore make it a better workplace. And then for my personal practice too, to know that like me getting a massage every month is not indulgence. It's it's absolutely necessary to, to sustain the, the space holding that I'm that I'm doing. So I think some of it is also that mental reframe to not um, yeah, to get out of the idea of, of, of martyrdom and the idea that self care is, is self indulgence and take Audre Lorde's words to heart uh, that um, this is part of political warfare. We weren't meant to survive. This is how we survive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you talked about a sabbatical, I'm actually taking three months off um, in 2022. And a, and a friend fundraised for me. Did a, It was part of a larger sort of organizing movement and, and working with, this was a white-bodied person working with BIPOC folks to like support where money goes and support the things that we need. And so wasn't just me, um, but, you know, raise them the funds to be able to take time off, which feels revolutionary in so many ways and necessary <laughs> to your point about like, you know, we need to rest. And um, if more people model this, then more, it will become a practice actually within, yeah. within our movement spaces. Um, yeah. And yeah. And just the power of when I told my mom, I was taking a sabbatical. She was like, you're going to forget this is from a person who worked 32 years as a special education teacher, like went to work, did similar things, an amazing human. And she was like, you're going to forget how to do what you do. And I was like, no, I'm just going to like go deeper. Like, it's not, I'm just going to like be, when I come out, it's going to be like this, like bigger expression of, of the work and who I am. That's what I anticipate because of taking this space to rest. So um, I wish for more of that. Um, for us all. And I want to talk some about the, um, well, there are two questions I have. One thing I so appreciate about a queer dharma is, um, you know, Black feminist theory, um, liberation theory, like all of these, you weaved in all these different voices um, of folks that, that may or may not share your same identities. And so, and it seemed like that felt really important. To, to me, you know, in reading it, I was like, oh, this is a thread throughout and this is really an important part of the, the Dharma and the story and how it needs to be told. And to me, it also let me know that there's a clear understanding you have about the way our um, liberation is bound and, and um, oppression is happening similarly to different groups. And I'm curious to know how, how, that, how you gained that understanding because this question comes from being in spaces where people are sometimes unable to hold an intersectional frame and lens. 
Yeah. And then it becomes an impression Olympics. Yeah. Um, so that's where my question comes from, because it was so clear that that was not what you were in my experience of reading, reading it like that yeah. was, that's not what you were saying. It was more about wholeness through this lens of understanding intersectionality and weaving it in th- with different voices. So love to hear some about that. Those threads come from my social justice work and the, like, those are the black feminists are the thought leaders in so many movements from restorative justice to abolition to food justice. Like I, I'm just like going through health, just, healing justice, right? Um, so all the movements that I've been part of um, have been envisioned and, and, and led by, by black feminists. So my work is possible and my, my what I've learned and now what I do is possible because of their work and vision and theories and labor. Um, so it would feel incredibly dishonest and out of integrity to not honor them. And also just knowing from the Kampahi River Collective statement, right? That like when black women are liberated, then all of us are gonna be liberated because Black women are at so many intersections of, of systems of oppression. And so their liberation would upheave the whole thing. And therefore my liberation would be possible and and everyone else's as well. And it's and it's also out of a commitment to anti-racist practice and you know, knowing, watching in different movements, right, that like the domestic workers bill of rights was was led by domestic workers and was supported by the employers of domestic workers who were white sometimes disabled sometimes jewish organization in new york was a big part of the the first bill uh, the first statewide bill of rights for domestic workers in new york state or watching the relationship between black lives matter and showing up for racial racial justice the one the black led movement and the other white anti-racist movements that are taking leadership from BLM. Um, like this is just like the model that I have grown up in and don't really know how I would write a queer dharma any other way. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And I wanted to ask because I think in so many ways you model how to hold this intersectional lens as we do our work and what, people who are listening to under to like understand that and think about that because I feel like there's so many things that want to move us apart from each other yeah as we're doing it like there are limited resources or you know like I just think and so your answer you know your lived experience it sounds like this is just who you are and and it's how you came into this practice and work right and so of course it's infused in a queer dharma and for some folks, that may not be as obvious as far as a practice of like holding an intersectional lens. Yeah, but I mean, I, I also thought about people like you, people about Adrian Marie Brown, people about like Alexis Pauline Gums and Angela Davis, like reading the book potentially and not wanting y'all to like toss it across the room, right? So, but for you to like see see yourself in the book too, and and to see this as as a contribution, like it felt like, you know, like I write in the introduction that this is a a commitment and a promise and also reparations for for what white folks have done and hopefully 
I know in so many, in all of my relationships with um, black and indigenous folks of color that like racism is inevitably gonna come up in their relationship, right? And and some of it is um, trauma and racialized trauma and it's not about me individually. Some of it is definitely about me individually making mistakes and causing harm. Um, but it also, to, to, to hold that lens, to know that like in order to be in relationship to and overcome the like white supremacy and, and capitalist informed separation of our society right now, um, it means working through some like really hard moments and also shifting like, I, I endeavor humbly <laughs> to be one of the white folks in relationships with at least some of my beloveds and colleagues of color that like allows you to trust white people again or to mm -hmm. invest in or that because so many of us have 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 betrayed BIPOC folks and and thrown you thrown you under the bus and I really deeply know and feel that that harm and know we need to forge another way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and another yeah culture another version of like anti-racist white culture that's not coming from guilt or shame but like deep love and commitment and vulnerability and diligence mm -hmm. I appreciate the way you are speaking about this and a and a practice right your commitment and your devotion to and that's what I feel and hear and this desire for there to be a different way for white folks to dismantle racism or be in, you know, anti-racism movements um, and to do the work and not out of guilt and shame, but out of like white body folks want us to be free, right? And and like from that place and from the heart and from connection, but with a clear understanding that there's a whole history of, of you know, that explains why we wouldn't trust white bodied folks, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and the, what you said about diligence and just practice, I feel like this is such an important teaching, you know, for us, those of us who, who have identities that are given advantage or in closer proximity to power and, and those of us who have identities where we're put in the margins, right, and underestimated and not cared for, but just to, to hear this, how it is a practice, right, ongoing because that's so much of what I noticed, like in response to the murder of George Floyd, like white folks engaged for a moment. And then it was like, where'd you go? Like, it's still <laughs> happening. Something yeah. happened a month after, you know what I mean? It's like, it's still happening because the world is tur turning and white supremacy is a real thing that continues yeah. to, as all systems of oppression that continue to persist. So I appreciate, appreciate that about you and your work and your commitment. Mm -hmm. and I, yeah, thank you. Part of my role, right, like as a white person in anti-racist work is to snatch those white people that are like dip their toes in and then like think they're going to leave. <laughs> like they're going to hopefully and to like bring them back from a, a place of, of, of love and patience and um, identification too that I have also been someone that's like you know, incredibly uncomfortable and wants to leave the room too. And we, we have to stay or else our own, we're not going to be like white supremacy dehumanizes white folks as well. 
And so if we don't invest in, in racial justice, then we're just hurting, we're hurting ourselves as well as hurting our BIPOC siblings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm, I want to talk about the, the teachings, what you named earlier about letting go anger and acceptance. And um, I'm thinking about the time we're living through and around something right now, right? The moment we're in um, and all that is happening. Not that some, I mean, there's so many things that are happening now that have been happening, right? But, but we've been in a pandemic for almost two years and there was an uprising, a global uprising, right? In response to the murder of George Floyd on the heels of other murders. And I'm really interested to know how these, these teachings how you're working with them now in this moment. I think that's the question because they feel like, I feel enraged by what's happening and that we're not caring for each other, yeah. right? And and there has to be some practice of like, they just feel like so, I know they're old teachings, but so resonant and relevant. And I'm wondering, and I always like to contextualize them to like, what is happening right now? Yeah. So I'm curious to know about that. How are you working with them now in response to what is happening at this time in our world? Mm. With letting go and acceptance um, and equanimity teachings too, there's the understanding that our collective thoughts, words, and actions and inactions led to this moment and over centuries, right? That like this, what we're seeing right now, the like white supremacy uh, movements and candidates rearing their heads in like so many different locations around the world. Like it, it took 500 years to get into this. And so it's gonna take a long time to get out too, which is very counter to my activist training that's like seeking change right now. And like, I remember going to work for the public interest research groups, um, uh, knocking door to door for on behalf of Green, Greenpeace when I was 18 or 19. And how they, how they got me um, was a poster on, on my college campus that says, save the planet. And I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, like as if that could be done in my lifetime or, or within a few years. So that the, the teachings of, of letting go and equanimity accepts that, that everything that it took to get into this moment to, and to stop refuting that history, right? Like there's been so much backlash against the 1619 project. And it's just like, it's just a waste of time. There's been like these truths offered up and like, can we be with the pain of that history rather than just like refuting it? Because if we, if we are just stuck in fighting it, then we're not going to move forward to another way of being. Right. Um, so that's where compassion comes in is, is developing the capacity of heart to, to be with the difficult in our personal lives and our political worlds. And before we can get to that tender place of compassion, for so many of us targeted by these systems of oppression, we have to let out the rage because our humanity is being denied and assaulted and, and uh, dismissed daily. Like I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking of like all of the anti-trans bills around the country right now that that's, you know, claiming that like trans people shouldn't exist and we're a threat to like 
schools were a threat to the healthcare system and and that's enraging, right? That like to 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 be a trans person in this moment and and thank God like I have these tools, right? I, I really feel in a uh, I really feel for trans youth and really protective of them of like not having these tools and coming into their identity so vulnerable and so from a place of deep honesty, right? Like it's not an easy thing for a queer or a trans person to come out in a world that has homophobia and transphobia in it. And then to be like assaulted by these these policies that then are ingrained in like how other children or other teachers or administrators treat them or their coaches, we have to let out that rage somewhere. So in my anger chapter, I talk about it's through my, my studies on, on trauma that I understand the importance of discharge, that, that anger is an energy in our bodies that needs to be released. And if it's not released intentionally, right? Like if I don't go to the batting cages to release my anger, if I don't go for a run, if I don't um, go stomp in the snow, then it's gonna come out somewhere else. It's gonna come out unintentionally. It might come out all over you. It might come out, you know, when I'm like in a tense, work discussion. It might be when I'm under-resourced and in the last hour of the day talking to my partner, that's when it comes out. The fire of anger is going to come out. You can't, you can't, that can't not happen. So working with it intentionally feels like this is how we care for ourselves and we care for our relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the teachings around that and the, the connection you've made. Um, the, the connection that's inherent in the teachings around compassion around to get to that place anger like we have to feel and how that's connected to being with our heartbreak right the pain of of what is happening the reality of what we're responding to or living in um, and how we are in so many ways creating this reality like we are you know putting conditions in place that do not allow folks to thrive or be free yeah. right to be with that pain too right or the ways we benefit from from other people's oppression um it's like not easy work no no <laughs> it's why work. we don't do it it's why our society doesn't do it but if we don't do it this is the world we get right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i was talking to someone earlier i don't know oh i was talking to someone and then i I was doing an intuitive healing session with them. Um, and um, I said something like, there was a time when the world was not this way. Like, I just trust that at some point, way, way, way back, there was like a time when we were not doing this to each other, right? So we can create that again. And it's making me think about that, like remembering that we have not always been this way and we do not have to be this way now. Right. right. And and these teachings can help direct us and heal us and um, help us out excavate, like go to the places we don't want to go. Right. And and um, work with that. So and so appreciative of them and how you've you've um, offered them throughout a queer dharma um, and the way you write about them and talk about them. I am wondering if there is. What is your dream for this book? That was not the question I was going to ask, but and not even the book. Like I don't know where that came from, but like, what is your vision? Like, what is your if you if you have one, and often people do when they birth something and put it out in the world, which is enough. I'm not saying you need to have right. 
something beyond that. I don't mean it that way. I just yeah. was like, what it, so we can, you know, so we can support you in the stream. Right. That's where the question's coming yeah. from. Yeah, thank you. I would love it to be required leading, reading for yoga teacher trainings and Dharma teacher trainings. There's so many of yoga and Buddhist lineages have harm within them. And um, I know that, again, that when we listen to the voices of the, the most marginalized and targeted people that like we're all uplifted. And I think the required reading of those trainings is shifting, right? Like it's, it's including your books, it's including Susanna's book and mm -hmm. Jeevana's book and Octavia's book and <laughs> Gail's book. So that's, that's part of the dream. I also would love for the book to get into the hands of every queer youth and trans youth or GSA even, you know, to get one of my students, um, her white straight son leads the GSA at his very conservative Catholic school. And because I'm her teacher, I'm his mother's teacher, he's bringing my book to the GSA. And then they're gonna they're gonna like look at it and study it together, so that feels I mean really dreamy because that GSAs are built on solidarity, right? It's it's gay straight alliance, and so much of my book talks about solidarity and alliance and accountability. And then I would also I would also love it to impact social movements. So somehow whether that's I don't, I don't know how I don't have expectation. I also know and value that, you know, so many of our visionaries are reading and relying on the writings of, of Black and Indigenous people of color. And so I, I'm not trying to, like, push into that. I um, know that that's incredibly important, especially given that, like, people that look like me, our books have been centered for a long, long time. <laughs> and so then perhaps for, like, white anti-racist folks or for straight folks or um, for the book to offer something to, to people that are in movement work with coming with into it with a lot of privilege. Hopefully it could support them in some humility and vulnerability and compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that question came through because I do believe in like us holding um, your vision and your, your dream or dreams for this work, practice, book, right? Body of work. Um, and so I invite all the listeners to support this dream and to take action, right? Depending on where we are in community to, to share this and, and a queer dharma and speak about it and support, support your work. Um, so thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was kind of surprised when the question came in a way, because I was not, ex I was starting to ask a different question than it was like, Oh, this is the question you need to ask. You know, <laughs> I love that the moments like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love for you to share some about it, um, what's coming up in 2022. What is there anything you want people to know about uh, ways they can support a queer Dharma? And of course, I'll put your how people can connect with you and, and connect with a queer Dharma in the show notes as well. Great. Um, I lead a mentorship for yoga teachers uh, called Resonance, and uh, it is a program that's intended to fill in the gaps of yoga teacher trainings. 
recognize that rather than offering my own yoga teacher training, I could just like offer a, <laughs> a supportive program that I, I see as like a colander to like catch all the drops of like what else comes through. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a six month program and starting in February. I teach ongoing weekly classes and that's going to online and that's going to keep going. Um, so that's a way to kind of like, just like dip a toe into my work um, for those interested. And then I became trained as a prenatal yoga teacher this year and am offering um, prenatal yoga that centers queer and trans folks. Um, so straight folks are still welcome in the space and the lens is a little bit different and more like expressly political and, you know, words are going to be shifted. So like it's because queer people mm -hmm. and trans people rename our bodies and that's an important way to, to center queer and trans people. Um, so that's a new avenue of my work and I'm, I'm so excited about it because there's so many, I, so many of my beloved queer folks right now have either are pregnant or have young children and there's not a ton of support. I know that there's like, folks that have had kids, gay folks that have had kids way before us, and there's still not much support. And, you know, even in major cities, a place like Salt Lake City, it's still, we're like pushing against our daycare every day for how they like talk about gender and race. So I'm, I'm curious, like what will evolve out of the prenatal yoga classes? Um, maybe there'll be postnatal classes, maybe there'll be like, you know, like queer family classes or I don't know, part of my practice, perhaps similar to yours is intuitive and just to like sense into like what's needed now and now and now. Yeah, I'm, I am so glad um, you were in the world and so glad you are going to offer, again, it, maybe it's prenatal, postnatal community space. I don't know, it sounds like it will be, it will reveal itself um, because I, rem I just remember being in a, I didn't take a full prenatal training. It was in 300 hour and it was like a weekend, which is not enough to understand what to do. But anyway, it was a weekend and the teacher assumed that the only people who could birth children are, are cis women. And I remember having like a complete in my body up and out of my mouth, like, hold up, wait a minute. You know, it was a, it was a while ago, probably 2011, but I was just wow. like, there's something so wrong with this do you know what I mean like I can't I don't understand yeah. why this is a narrative that's being perpetuated so I'm really grateful um that that you are um going to offer something that is more expansive and and um responds to um gender fluidity and and just our wholeness and how we show up in the world thank you so yeah, and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for being here and um, for a queer dharma. And it's been such an honor to be in this space with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a delight. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, as you all may know, I have a new book out, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief published by Shambhala Publications. It was published on July 13th, 2021, and can be found anywhere where books are sold. Along with the book, you can join me for some offerings focused on finding refuge and focused on collective grief, ritual, and processing trauma, 
allowing it to move through so that we can get free. We'll explore the connection between grief and liberation. You can support the podcast Finding Refuge by telling your friends about it and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action. I offer monthly Dharma talks, rituals, meditations, or movement practices. I hope you join me there. Take care. Be well, friends. Thank you.